Here we go once again, Monday night time for Ira on Sports. True Oldies channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, we always disclose this, you are not live in studio tonight. You're away, you had a busy weekend. What have you been up to? Well, I was at the Penn State Ohio State football game. What a game! It was devastating for Penn State again. We're now one in nine against Ohio State. So I was there. Was in Columbus, a great. And now I'm. I have a fantasy basketball draft. I have three nights straight of fantasy basketball. So I know this is crazy. That's NBA. Think about NBA when I'm thinking about Major League Baseball. We have playoffs. We have college football and pro football. But I have to get ready for the NBA. So we have a draft, a big draft tonight that I've done for a million years. Ira got some great uh, photos over the weekend. You can see them anywhere on. Social media at Ira on Sports and Ira Michael McCambridge is going to join us at 7:40. Fascinating author and writer. Tell us about him. He wrote a book. He's one of the best NFL writers, and he wrote a book about the 70s and how it transformed sports. And it is a tremendous book. He's a great writer, and I can't wait to have him on and talk about uh, everything we about the 70s and how sports changed from the 60s to 70s, and the fact that that athletes in the 60s, uh, you know, didn't have to, had to work second and third jobs, and now, of course, now they're having plenty of time to date Taylor Swift and no advantage for Kansas City. <laughs> Times definitely have changed. We'll talk to uh, Michael McCambridge coming up at 7:40. So. Let's start with Penn State, Ohio State. You were there. You've said in the past that Ohio State and going to these games is one of the most uh, vicious, if that's the word for it, atmospheres that you go into. It is, but they were nicer this time. I have to give them credit. I don't know what happened, but I think the fans, maybe they just seemed to be nice to me. The section I sat in, everyone was really friendly and nice. And I'll, it was, how about this? And I'll say, I was at game day before the game, and there's a side when you go to game day, there's a zillion people, they had a great turnout. And I'm at the corner where the stage, and Herb Street, McAfee, they come across back to that stage to the side. And Herb Street, I'm there standing. There was nobody, I got there late, but there was nobody who realized they used that side stage. And so I got there, and Herb Street looks at me, and he saw, I was like, the only Penn State fan in the whole area. He goes, are we treating you nice? Because, of course, he's a Ohio State quarterback. <laughs> I said, yeah, everyone's great. And it's just, sure, great. And he gave me, like, a thumbs up, like, great, like that. So I thought that the fact that Kirk Kirstie was nervous that people were treating me nice, it gave me a little extra comfort. Is there anything else you want to talk about with the atmosphere? Obviously, you've been here plenty of times before, so you kind of know where to stay, where you want to sit, that kind of thing. I loved it. This game, the fans, people were, even Ohio State fans were, were they were pumped about how this, there's no Michigan game here. They're away this year at Michigan. So this is their biggest game. The weather was perfect. And I like to have now a parking space that I know I park in this like place where these, where this, it, how it goes to like uh, for doctors. It's uh, for people who are in medical field, stuff like that, where they raise money for these doctors that they can go and help people around the world. So I like doing that rather than just paying money to like the <laughs> New York Giants, uh, whatever, for parking for $200 and the fraternity. Can you imagine you're on college campus and you're getting there at nine o'clock in the fraternities and sororities and the parties and everything as you walk in the stadium, the kids were up early, everyone's having a good time. And then you get down right around the stadium and there's all these bars around there with open outdoor bands and it's nine 30 and they're fast and everyone's having a good time. And I like that. And then game day was there on one side. And then there was the big noon kickoff on Fox on the other. I didn't make that side, but it was so fun to go be a game day, see all those things. And I like that. And then again, the stadium, early I actually got club seats and I sat on the sixth row on the 40 and I normally sit a little further back but this was just a perfect perfect seat overlooking everything of the stadium and uh, it's an older you know Columbus Ohio Stadium's an old old stadium seats 100,000 people has the two decks but they've added suites and clubs and they've tried to make it it much better and it's neat you know the whole 
avid for the game. Like the band comes down from the one side where they actually come down a ramp, like in Clemson when you see them come down, and then they do the whole oh, script of Ohio, and then the trombone player puts the script and, and dots the eye, and that's great. And then the team from the other side. So it was. I like getting there early. I like getting there college. College football lets you get there much earlier than pro, so you can see the players like warm up in their t-shirts and their shorts and throw the balls around and 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 that I could see Marvin Harrison joke around and I thought it was great. And oh, the one last thing was the the walk. Every stadium team now seems to do that where they're all dressed in their fancy like NBA draft outfits or NFL draft outfits and they're walking from the, you know, for their were from like the skull session where they had to the stadium. So it's like a quarter mile walk and line with fans and the bands. That is great. You don't see it like the NFL teams, they're not doing that. NBA is not doing that. This is a college football thing and I think it's great and I love that tradition. So, Ira, this is a matchup, you know, Penn State, Ohio State that we see every year. You want to talk about some of the history here and kind of. Penn State's ineptitude, maybe? A lot of people are calling for, for Franklin's job today. Well, because we beat Penn State beats everybody, but they can't beat Ohio State. They're one and nine. Franklin is now one and nine against Ohio State. The only one they won was 2016 on a blocked field goal at the end of the game when Urban Meyer was down at the Penn State game. Urban Meyer was so far, it was on the other side of the field. So he was on like the end zone on the other side, somehow watching when he realized there was a problem and he's trying to run and he got tied up in his, his uh, legs, whatever happened. I don't know that something got tied up and he's like tripping and falling, trying to call a timeout, couldn't call a timeout, kick gets blocked, Penn State wins. 100,000 people rush the field, but that was it. And then this is a Penn State team that, again, it comes into these games undefeated. We don't play in. Penn State doesn't play anybody. They have Delaware and Massachusetts. And it just shows it just shows what happens when you go to a game like this, when Penn State is so dominant throughout the season. They have the best number one scoring defense, one of the top scoring offenses, and you don't play anyone. And then the game, the players that are on defense that you're going against are, are, are NBA players. They're not, as uh, J.J. Reddick says, they're not going to be accountants and lawyers and plumbers or whatever they wanted to. You're actually playing real NFL players on defense and Drew Aller, who looked great and did not throw an interception, looked like one that like people are saying, oh, he's going to be a first round pick next year in the NFL draft. Looked like someone who probably could get pulled from being the quarterback going against a talent like Ohio State. So you want to talk about that? This is Ira on Sports, by the way. True Oldies channel on Mike Balsamo at Ira on Sports. Follow anywhere on social media. Let's talk about the game itself because this was one. A lot of pundits before the game were saying, take the under on this one. This could be a kind of a defensive battle, and that's kind of what we got. Well, that's sort of what, you know, Ohio State didn't have their running back, Trayvon Henderson. They didn't have one of the star wide receivers, Abika Buka, but they did have Marvin Harrison, and he certainly you know, had a, an amazing game. And their quarterback, but the quarterback play from Ohio State, Kay McCord was awful, and Drew Aller was even worse. I mean, and these are two first-year quarterbacks. Uh, McCord had, was, oh, was a junior, so he's been in the system. And the fun thing about the game was C.J. Stroud was in, you know, Houston was off this week, so he was there on the game. A lot of times players get there and they stand on the corner the sides and they couldn't CJ Stroud was in the middle. I'm behind the Ohio State bench. I, I felt there was times when CJ was just going to say, Hey, Kate, I'm, can I just put your uh, helmet on? Like, I thought CJ was going to run in the game because he was standing right there. He was standing next to Ryan Day and the offensive coordinators. On, I've never seen a player like that ever. Not Juan Barkley, maybe like the Penn State. I've never seen a player who was in the NFL come back and just be a miss. And he was talking to every player. I mean, he played with them last year, so he knows the players, but was enthusiastic. And it was a big, I think, a big key to their win. Um, but no, it was Penn State. I'll give you one stat. Penn State was one for 16 for three point conversion. Just awful. One, they, most of the game, they had not converted a, thir- a, 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 a set of three points. Third down. <laughs> third down. Third down. I'm getting my basketball ready. I'm thinking three pointers. And, uh, 
But in the first half, it was just a mess in terms of the Ohio State, I thought, could have had a bigger lead. But Harrison, actually, Marvin Harrison Jr., dropped three passes. And no drops, it was bad passes or bad fourth. But they were only, so it was at one point, it was like, it was with 12.39 left in the second. Penn State had four punts in a field goal, and Ohio State had three punts in a field goal. Then Ohio State went on this drive, 13 play, 61-yard drive. Meon Williams ran down, and then... The key play of the game was on third and 11. McCord fumbles the ball. Curtis Jacobs picks it up, runs it for a touchdown. But the Penn State had a holding call on defense, and that gave them a first down. And so it's Penn State being up 10-3. Then the Ohio State went down, went up 10-3. And then they actually, Penn State got a field goal at the end of the half, which is shocking. But it was like 10-6, and they had gained like 100 yards in the whole first half. But the second half was, was even worse for Penn State. They literally went the entire second half and didn't gain a yard. And, uh, I mean, they had the first two possessions. They had gained like 16 yards and two yards. And then Ohio State's first was, was like one yard and negative three. And then Ohio State went down on fourth down. Again, these teams who cannot do anything on offense trying to go to fourth down, they're up, to, you know, 10-3. You know, they could go 33. They go for a touchdown on fourth down, a fourth and one, and it stopped. Penn State's pinned down there, like on the one yard line, and they end up having to punt the ball. So, like, okay, Ohio State, they got out of this Penn State, they're going to get great deal position again. But Ohio State fumbled, it's not really a fumble, they kicked the ball around, they messed it up. Penn State gets the ball back now. Now all the momentum is back to Penn State. But again, they can't do anything. They have to punt the ball. And, uh, and then finally, uh, with third and 11 on the 18, Ohio State throws it to Harrison, made it 20 to six with four minutes to the left. And really, the game was over there. I mean, Penn State, as I said, scored, had, I think, total yards in the second half at that point, like two. I mean, there was negative losses and sacks and everything like that. But really, one of the most pathetic, they, Penn State, who could not, Singleton and Katron Allen could not run the ball. Aller could not throw the ball. And this is a team that, that people thought there was NFL players on their offensive line, everything, just they could not do anything. And Ohio State's defense was absolutely, you know, Jim, their, their defensive coordinator is the highest paid defensive coordinator in the country, you know, totally changed the mindset of Ohio State in terms of how they play defense. It's amazing. If they had the offense they had last year with the defense they had this year, they would be clearly the best team in the country. But Penn State, really pathetic performance on their part. And, uh, you know, the question is now that sets up between they play Michigan in three weeks and then Ohio State plays Michigan at the end of the season. And that, those are two teams that quite most they could potentially both be in the national championship. But the winner of that game will definitely be in the college football playoff. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. So you mentioned Michigan, and you also said best team in the country, and that could be what we're seeing in Michigan. And one thing that they've been doing to Big Ten opponents is not being afraid to run up the score, 52-10 to 10 versus Minnesota, 52-7 versus Indiana, and then another shellacking, 49 nothing over Michigan State. 276 to 47 in seven games. They're outscoring opponents in the third, 90, third quarter, 90 to nothing. JJ McCarthy, I think people are just overlooking him. He was tremendous. 287 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. And again, before the game, there's, you know, this, the scandal that Jim Harbaugh was using to send a, a Navy SEAL to look at, spy, at plays that other <laughs> teams had and scout because, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't let teams scout. The NCAA has a rule where you can't scout other teams, just save money. Now, I'm looking at Penn State, and as the players ran out, they have like 50 assistant coaches. So I think if it costs money to go to a game, like I, it's like ridiculous. You're not 
not going to scout and you can't, but you're allowed to steal signals, but you can't scout or whatever. I think this is a much to do about absolutely nothing. And all these teams that are whining about Michigan doing it, just beat them. Stop worrying about what Michigan, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, don't worry about signs and this and that. Just try to beat them in a the game. But Michigan, look, they play Michigan State, who has all the problems in the world, uh, firing their coach before the, you know, in the middle of the year, Mel Tucker. Uh, they're two and five, and the line was like 20, it's 27 28 in the game. But no, Michigan's rolling along, and they really, this Penn, I think Michigan looks at the Ohio State Penn State game and the ineptitude on both offenses and says, look, we can definitely go to Penn State, beat up Penn State, and then we're going to get Ohio State at home. So you're, if you're a Michigan fan, you come out this weekend saying, we destroyed our, our in state uh, competition, Michigan State, 49 nothing. And now we have, we look at Ohio State and Penn State as weakened, and we can beat those teams. Keeping it, keeping in the Big Ten at Minnesota and Iowa, not a ton of scoring here. I just wanted to bring this game up for one thing. Is it was crazy. I was Cooper DeJohn had a punt return, a 52-yard punt return to win the game at the end of the game. He had a chance. I mean, this I was could be in the, the Big Ten Championship. So he runs back, but because he, he was, was telling the blockers where to block, they took it back saying he called for a fair catch. I don't know anybody who's seen this on TV who didn't think this was a terrible call, and it was like a great run back, and it really ruined like a great moment and just an awful. He clearly was not raising a fair catch. He was just pointing to it. So it just teaches you don't point anything when you're trying to return a punt. Arms at your sides at all times. <laughs> What's next for the Big Ten? Well, really, just I'm going to go to the Penn State-Indiana game next week. Michigan's off, and Ohio State has a game against Wisconsin. They're 14 half-point favorites. Um, it pretty, should be pretty easy for Ohio State, but you never know. Ohio State sometimes throws these games where they have these poor games in there, but no, that's really not much more. It's, uh, you just have to focus the Big Ten on Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan. Those are only three teams. Going to the Big 12, uh, UCF put up quite the fight versus Oklahoma. Not a lot of people saw that coming. Well, Dylan Gabriel was the quarterback of Oklahoma, used to be the quarterback for UCF. So he's saying the flight. Little did he realize when he played at UCF that UCF was going to be in the Big 12. I think that'd be crazy. And John Reese Plumley played at Mississippi is the quarterback for UCF now. Again, the, the, the musical chairs of quarterbacks continue. But uh, 23-17, UCF started off the uh, fourth quarter, and then Oklahoma had a touchdown, and they had another touchdown that made it 31-23. But I'll tell you, UCF drove down, they scored a touchdown, and had a chance. I'm watching this on TV. They had a chance to win the game, and they could not get that two-point conversion. So a tough, tough loss, uh, 31-29, but UCF 3-4, and four, and Oklahoma now is still undefeated at 7-0. and oh. But they were a 17-point favorite, only one by two. Texas gets the win over Houston, but this one could be troubling because Quinn Ewers looks like he's hurt. Well, Quinn Ewers got hurt in the game. Um, it was one of those games where they seen they were up 21 nothing, and Houston almost came back in this game. And Houston did have a chance, I mean, because they, it was like a spot of the ball where they went on at the end of the game, they're driving, and because they ruled it wasn't a first down, they had to hustle for a fourth down and didn't convert it. But Quinn Ewers being out, and the big issue was they did not bring Arch Manning in as their backup quarterback. They brought Malik Murphy because there's the, the thought in Texas. And I was down there and I saw it. It's like they, he's, they want to redshirt Manning. They do not want to play him this year. And so that's one reason why they brought Murphy not but if yours is going to be out for four or five games then there is an issue where they have to play them so we'll see what happens and the other games oklahoma state beat west virginia ollie gordon i love that name ollie gordon but he i watched this on tv i was at a, at a bar right after the game was over and uh, so i had all the games i had 29 carries for almost 290 yards and four touchdowns so anybody you know playing fantasy football in the nfl would love ollie gordon and that would have been great and how about this score tcu lost to kansas state 41-3 and i bring this up because tcu's four and four this year remember last year they played in the national championship game and then they they lose this they're really not having a good year after they're playing in the national championship game Ira on sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's go to the Pac-12. Ira, we're used to watching Washington 
score a lot of points. This is one of the best offenses in the country. Didn't happen against Arizona State, but still got the win. Yeah, and you know what? It kept me up all night because I'm done with the game. I go back to a hotel, and this hotel was crazy. I stay at this nationwide conference center where I could not – I've never went to a hotel before. You cannot find your room at all because there's nowhere where the hotel was, and it's a small little sign. There's like these buildings after buildings. And so I finally am rushing there. I get in there, and I'm watching up the step. I'm like, okay, Washington's going to – they're a 30-point favorite. They're going to blow a 1-5 in, in Arizona's 18. And Arizona State, as I'm listening to the game, they were leading 7-3 and a half. Michael Penix Jr., who everybody said is going to be, including me, Heiser Trophy winner at two interceptions and a fumble. Washington started the second half with a fumble. Arizona State is up 7-3. They could not kick a field goal. Their field goal could get missing field goals, missed a field goal. And then the only way Washington got back in is they returned a punt and made it and was able to score on that. And still Arizona State had a, a, on a fourth, you know, then uh, Arizona State on a fourth and three on a 12, and they had a pick six that returned it and made it 12-7. But it was like Penix was awful. Two interceptions, a fumble, and uh, barely, you know, barely winning a game that they were set favored by 30. They only up winning. I mean, they should have lost the game. If Arizona State had a kicker, they would have been, they would have not gone for the, the throw the pick six, and they would have not, you know, punted the ball where they returned the ball so much. So very disastrous game for Washington and really questions. A lot of people thought after Washington played Oregon that Oregon was the better team, but they lost because it was at Washington. If they had a rematch, Oregon would win. I'm starting to think like that now. I, Washington could not run the ball. They had 13 rushing yards the whole game. And uh, for some team that was just blowing everyone out and had the big win against Oregon, just a bad performance on their part. Speaking of Oregon, they took on Washington State. Huge win again. Bo Nix is great. He had now sets a record. How about his 54 career NCAA starts um, at Auburn and now Oregon? And he broke, how about this, Kellen Moore, who's the, the offensive coordinator of the Chargers. Uh, he broke his record at 53. And Colt McCoy, who seems that coach, you know, played for every NFL team at 53 starts. But big win for, you know, Washington State started out, they were 3 and 0. They were 13th in the country, and now they've lost a bunch of games, three more games. But a big win for Oregon in that game. USC took on Utah, and Ira, we got Caleb Williams, who is the biggest quarterback prospect since Andrew Locke. He's, he's, he's the number one pick right now. It doesn't matter. Where would you think he is on the Heisman Trophy betting board right now? I think he's very, very low. He's 19th, which is kind of crazy because about a month ago he was first. J.J. McCarthy's actually first. that You mentioned him earlier. But this was another game where USC fans – and USC as a team, they think that they're really good, but when you see them actually play, the defense doesn't hold up the bargain, and they lost this game to Utah. A lot of things about this game. First of all, Utah's quarterback, Cam Rising, who's a phenomenal quarterback, was hurt in the Penn State game last year and the Rose Bowl, and they thought he'd come back this year. But he's now, as they, before the game announced, he's not coming back at all. So people were waiting for him to come back. Utah's defense is phenomenal. If they had Cam Rising, I think they might win the national championship with him. But they have Bryson Barnes instead. And Bryson Barnes, was, as their coach said, Kyle Whittingham said, he, was raised, he raised pigs in Utah. <laughs> That's what his job was, which is interesting because Larry Zonka, who we had on our show, is also remember he in Ohio was was on a pig farm too. So it just shows being on these pig farms is great preparation for <laughs> college football. But Lincoln Riley now is seventeen and five with three losses to Kyle Winningham. So when Lincoln Riley is making the ten million dollars a year and going to go to the NFL and everybody thinks it's so great, Kyle Winningham at Utah is this great coach that people have to realize is a super coach. And Utah has this player called Sione Basaki. He's a strong safety on defense. He had an offense. He had nine carries for sixty yards. He had five receptions for one hundred fifty yards. He does everything. He's like treats. Like I mean, as, as Travis Hunter is for Colorado, he's actually better than Travis Hunter in terms of how he plays because he's their star defensive player and he's also the star offensive player. But this game was crazy. Utah's up 28-14 at the end of the third. And then uh, 
I thought they blew it because Utah, they got a field goal. There was a pick six and then USC returned it and they took the lead at 32, 31, but then Utah drove down at the end of the game with passes and Barnes ran He like this crazy, like the longest yard TV, like where he was running and everyone's like hitting him and everything. And he was able to get down into field goal range and they kicked the field goal to win the game. And now USC has lost two straight games. They lost the Notre Dame last week, lost to Utah this week. And uh, that's, there goes their national championship, uh, you know, chances. Ira, you brought it up. I was going to ask you anyway. You think Lincoln Riley is out after this year, heading to the NFL? I don't know. I mean, I think if they keep losing, he's not. I mean, I think the fact is that he can't. He has this team that everyone was projecting was going to be so great, and you have the greatest cultural player in, in, that you could imagine. The fact that you have Caleb Williams back, and that the, the, their defense is a mess. Their offensive play calling is bad. I think this is really this how this season goes. I think matters because he really is. He's more like Sean Payton. Like he comes across as I know it all. I'm better than everyone. I'm smarter than everyone. I'm this and that. And then when you don't do that, then it becomes an issue. And I think I, I don't know. We'll see how this year goes to see what happens with Lincoln Riley because his record right now is what Clay Helton was, and they fired Clay Helton. So what happened else? Uh, what, what else happened in the Pac-12? Um, not much in terms of the Pac-12, but next week, the big game, Colorado's two, a couple of big games, Oregon, Utah. If that, this is going to be great. Oregon's favored by six. They're at Utah. I'm telling you, this is going to be a great, great game. Washington is a 27-point favorite against Stanford. I would bet Stanford in that game. I like how Stanford's playing. And Colorado's at UCLA. How about this? Because much as all this fame and everything about Colorado was, and we certainly had the author of Deion Sanders' book on that, Colorado is a 17-point underdog to UCLA. Going to the ACC, watching uh, Duke versus Florida State with some Florida State fans, they were sweating <laughs> come the fourth quarter. Obviously, things turned around, but Duke hung around for a while. I felt bad about this game because I think the ch- the turning point of the game was when Duke. Well, first of all, uh, when the Duke had a you know Duke was twenty seventeen and Duke was uh, driving and the Riley Leonard, their quarterback, was taken down who had an ankle injury going in the game on a face mask. It was a terrible face mask, and he hurt his ankle, and then he couldn't play the rest of the game even though you saw him in the silence wanting to play, and that sort of let Florida State then score three touchdowns. I don't think that's the reason. Florida State seems to be like a team that they they either wait to the end to win or they struggle or whatever. They've really not put together a, just a couple of good games this year. But Travis is great again, two hundred sixty eight yards, two touchdowns. And ran for 62 yards and a touchdown. But uh, again, it was like it, Duke plays hard, and I just wish Riley Leonard could have played that whole game. And I just think it is a shame. It's rare that you see that F, a penalty and cause an injury that then really transforms the entire game. Virginia took on UNC, and this was one that was a very, very uh, unpredictable. Considering UNC was favored by 24 points, this is Virginia going the game is one and five. They had only beat William and Mary, and they had lost to James Madison. This is the first time since 1961, which is almost like 62 years ago or something, that a team that was one and five beat a top 10 team. Amazing and terrible performance. I how does UNC lose this game? It's just embarrassing. Uh, everything about it about the it's Drake May. His numbers look good, 347, two touchdowns. But at the end of the game, they had three chances. They had a punt. They went on fourth down, didn't get it, and then May threw an interception. So as much as I love Drake May, I'm telling you, he, there's his, he plays like Justin Herbert, which he looks great, puts up great numbers, and he still you know, like, and loses these games. There's so much of that in him. I cannot believe they lost that game. There's no reason for them to lose to Virginia, and that put them out of the national championship picture with that loss because there's no way they play in a playoff, even if they won the ACC with a loss like that. I know that Clemson's not the team that they've been, you know, a couple of years ago. Still a quality team, though. Miami gets the win, and Miami, they're kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde. I really don't know what I'm going to see week in and week out craziest game. 
thought they were out of this game. They're either in a game. I mean, they just did our Jekyll and Hyde. But Cade Klubnick for Clemson is terrible. He should not be the quarterback there anymore. The first half, he had a fumble interception. And at the end of the first half, when they're just trying to just like run the ball out, he, he backs up and he almost got caught for a safety. And I, I thought Davos Leamy was going to punch him out. And then he criticized him after the game. He says, you know, even in the overtime, he ran the wrong play. Miami did not have Tyler Van Dyke. They started Emory Williams because Tyler Van Dyke was injured. But it was down. they were down 17-7 in the fourth quarter and actually came back and won and won in double overtime. But I really put this on. I'm, look, Miami's five and two. Clemson's four and three. This is, but Kate Klubnick is terrible. And now Clemson, this is a team that Clemson, that a few years ago was saying they had eclipsed, you know, went after Trevor Lawrence won the national championship, but they won two titles in four years with Sean Watson and Trevor Lawrence, that they had eclipsed Alabama as the number one team. Now they're, they're the middling ACC team. So it's, uh, it, was a, it was a big, big loss for Clemson, but, you know, a win that Miami needed to have. What's uh, next week? Florida State's favored by 20 at Wake, and then UVA. <laughs> Virginia's coming to Miami. Miami's favored by 20. Who knows what's going to happen in that game? Moving on to the SEC, Tennessee took on Alabama, and this is one, you know, we're seeing Alabama not be Alabama. They're still winning, but it's not as pretty as it used to be. Tennessee got out to an early start, but Alabama had it in the second half. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, Franklin with Ohio State, we're one and nine, but Saban against Tennessee is 16 and one, which is just amazing. Which the one was last year, 52-49 when Tennessee won. Again, Tennessee's up in this game 20 to seven in halftime, and they came, and, and Alabama came back, and, and one of them was a, was a scoop and score where they went in and sacked the quarterback and, and ran it in. And I like how they, they smoked cigars after the game, but boy, I mean, Saban's like, I'm not going to survive this season, but he's seven and one, and they just keep winning these games. And I, that's why I'm going to give Saban credit. When I see some of these, when you see a coach like Ryan Day lose games, and with certainly Franklin, I mean, Saban is a good game day coach. Like, there's games where I think Alabama, you know, they've won all these games. There's games where they probably should have won, but he's not just the CEO. He's not just, I'm going to bring the best talent in. I'm going to have the best talent, the best coordinators, the best money, all this sort of stuff. He actually knows how to coach games well and win games and make adjustments. So I give him credit for that. What else happened to the SEC? Uh, Mississippi uh, beat uh, uh, Auburn 28-21. That was a great scene. I was uh, looking at the game. Mississippi 6-1. and one. So they're sneaky. They're going to, you know, they, their only loss is to Alabama. But they're, they're, they're actually playing well. And then the South Carolina-Missouri game. Uh, Missouri, 7-1 and one from Missouri. 34, you know, they won 34-12. and 12, So that's good. And the next week's big game, Georgia-Florida, Crocktail Party. Georgia's favored by 14. What a, I mean, this is, this is big for Florida. I mean, if Florida can pull this upset off, um, remember, they have only just two losses. And then Tennessee is 5-2 and two at Kentucky, 5-2. and two. But the big game next week is Georgia and Florida. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. 15 minutes from now, we'll get to Michael McCambridge. Let's go to the NFL. Uh, game of the week for sure, Ira. We've had two great uh, matchups for Sunday Night Football in a row. This was Miami taking on Philadelphia. i got to get your take on the Eagles jerseys. A lot of people are loving the, the Eagles throwback. I'm not a fan of, of the weird gangrene. I don't know. But either way, Miami took the loss in this one. Philly's starting to look like that team that maybe is the best team, uh, one of the best teams in the NFC. I've said that. I've said that. I think San Francisco and Philly are so are, – are, 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 are so, are so And I gave you pushback so, on that for Dallas, and now I feel bad. <laughs> no, but I think they're, they're the best teams, and I, they, they're going to have a loss. They're gonna, they're not gonna, they might have another loss this year. But, again, this is the Philadelphia team. When push came to shove – and I'll tell you what, the problem with the Miami, they have five wins. The record against the teams are 8-25. and 25. Their only loss against a good team is the Bills, where they lost 48-20. Um, Jalen Hurts was hobbling for the game. Waddle got hurt during the game. 
the Eagles started out like they did last week against the Jets. They had a field, you know, they made a field goal that hurts, fumbles the ball. And then, uh, but then, you know, they, they, they end up making it 17, three. So they're like, they're in control. They look like they're in control, but then Miami, I give them credit. They came down with that touchdown at the end of the half, made it 17, 10. And then in the second half, you know, the, the Eagles, you know, had to punt the ball and then a fourth and three, they go for, you know, the, the question is, do you go for a field goal there? And that was where they went and they tried it. They missed it on fourth down. And then, then Hertz throws a pick six. So they did that. And then Hertz throws the pick six. So he didn't, Jill Hertz did not have this great game. It's 1770. And you're like, the Eagles have dominated this game. They've stopped it. You know, their defense is great. They've stopped Waddle. They've stopped Hill. They've stopped Tua. And there's no running game whatsoever. I mean, anyone, I was going against most hard in fantasy. But it's sort of like that pick six, I think, woke up the Eagles. That was like they finally, like after the Jets game and this, finally something snapped with them because then they went on this great drive, made it 24 17. Then when the Dolphins drove down, and I thought that pass in the touch for the touchdown and Darius Slay makes he makes so many big interceptions, comes over and makes the interception, and they drive down, score another touchdown, make it 31-17. But I'm telling you, I think the pick six that hurts through, I think that was like, what is going on? And I think it's something must have woke him up. And that he played great after that. But Dolphins just had 244 yards. Uh, for the game, 17 points a season low. Tua had uh, one touchdown, one interception. And his sacks, he had three sacks in this game. I thought the sacks were the hardest uh, uh, he was hit all year by the Eagles. I mean, there's points where the game where I'm like, oh, don't get a concussion on these because they were really hitting him hard. And, then, of course, most are nine carries for 45 yards. Not a really, you know, really a poor game for the Dolphins. You want to talk about the Dolphins' upcoming schedule? I know in two weeks they're going to be in Germany, and I kind of hate that we're going to see them play KC at 930 in the morning. Dolphins have, it's interesting, New England with the New England's win, and you cannot just say, okay, New England stinks, because you saw what New England did against Buffalo this week, and it's Bill Belichick and the team, and there's so much there. Better be careful. I know they're like 10-point favorites. I mean, it's ridiculous against, uh, against the, against the uh, uh, Patriots. But then they play Casey in Germany at 9 o'clock, which is ridiculous. It's the number one game in the AFC this year, and to put that in Germany at 9 o'clock is crazy. Then they have five easy games, Vegas, Jets, Washington, Tennessee Jets, with the might win, you know, who knows what's going to happen in those. And then they have three hard games. But these two next are important because they, they go from New England and KC. If they lose, if they go on a, what if they go on a three-game losing streak going into the bye? So you don't want that to happen. So that's why this New England game is really, 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 concerning how well KC's playing, this New England game is super important. You mentioned earlier about how Nick Saban just gets the job done. I could kind of say the same about Mike Tomlin, Ira, and this was a game, not many people gave the Steelers a, a chance here against the Rams. They do, it, it's not always pretty, but they do what it takes to win. Now they're four and two. People thought this team might be, you know, sub 500 for the first time in two decades. Well, we're having Michael McCambridge on talking about the 70s, the last time the Steelers beat the Rams in California were in the 80s when Vince Ferragamo was the quarterback and like Evan can wait with the movie. But the Rams had no Kyron Williams and uh, but their running backs ran great. But the Steelers are experts at hanging in. It's like 9-3 at the end of the half. The Steelers have zero offense. Like I, The Steelers did not do anything on offense. They show more pictures of Matt Cannon, the offense coordinator, than they show t- Taylor Swift. I mean, they're showing him the whole time. But the key to the game was uh, T.J. Watt. He made this interception to start the second half on Stafford and they went and made it set 10, nine, the Rams then had this crazy touchdown and uh, went up 17, 10, but uh, the Rams missed this field. They were 17, 10. They go down again. They Brett Maher, their kicker. Do you remember him from the Cowboys? Remember he missed all those field goals and extra points in games. He missed so many field goals this game. They missed one earlier and they missed two field goals and an extra point, but they had a chance to go up 20, 10. They don't get that. So it's still 17, 10. And then the Steelers drove uh, for two touchdowns. And, and that was, it was just, it was a, it was amazing in terms of how the Steelers were able to to come in there. And then there was a questionable at the end when uh, when Sean McVay 
did not have any timeouts or challenges left. Steelers go on fourth down. They don't get it, but they couldn't challenge the spot, and clearly Pickett was short, but they end up losing the game. But the Steelers, again, they know how to hang in there. And the other teams, you've got to put the Steelers away. The Ravens, the Browns, all these teams have these chances to beat the Steelers. Now the Steelers are 4-2, and two, and I don't know how they're 4-2 and two because they have like the, one of the worst offenses in the world. But Pickett is, you know, his numbers look okay at the end. It's 17-25 for 230 yards. But um, getting DeAndre Johnson back was good, and George Pickett has played well at wide receiver. But the, it's just crazy how they keep winning these, winning these games. Speaking of the Patriots, this was a game where fantasy owners of the Buffalo Bills defense were looking at this, licking their chops like they're going to sh- crush these guys. The New England offense stinks. And every time you look up, New England's getting a field goal, getting a touchdown. Huge win here for Mac Jones, Bill Belichick over a division rival. I mean, if I would have said, look, Buffalo was a favorite by eight going to this game. If I said Buffalo is going to put up 25, 29 points, I mean, uh, uh, Patriots are going to put up 29 points. You're crazy. And you're also going to say they're going to have a touchdown at the end of the game to drive down to win the game. You're going to say that's even crazier. So it was just, it was insane in terms of how well Mac Jones played. I mean, Mac Jones looked like the best quarterback of the day yesterday in terms of 25 for 30, 272 yards, two touchdowns. And uh, Belichick, you know, everyone's like saying Belichick's going to have to retire in the middle of the season back. Jones is going to be cut and they come and they pull up a thing like this. And then, you know, and you question Sean McDermott, and Buffalo and Josh Allen and all these questions. I mean, Buffalo throw these games out, just like you look at their losses. I mean, the loss to the jets, this loss, like they're, they come out of nowhere. I don't know if Mac Jones was the best quarterback yesterday because Lamar Jackson is out there. And this was a game hour that was just strange to me. You're seeing, you sent me a text about, you know, where's all the Detroit Super Bowl people. Now I wasn't that guy, but I, thought that this is a real team. Their defense is much improved over the debacle they were last year. They can really score points. And you're watching this game, and it's, okay, 7 nothing Ravens, 14 nothing Ravens, 21 nothing Ravens. And you're, you're just waiting, like, where's the Detroit offense? I think this really shifts the landscape of where the Ravens are ranked in the league because you have to look at this game and say, wow, this team could win the Super Bowl. Well, I remember I've watched the, the Ravens Steelers games when they dropped all the passes that they were throwing. I thought they would blow out the Steelers the same way. They should have been up 28 nothing. They were up in this game 28 nothing before the Lions had a first down. And you have the Ravens with this great, so they're like the Cleveland Browns with an offense because they have this great, great, great defense and they have this super. And now Lamar Jackson is throwing, not running under Ton Munkin's new offense. He was 21 for 27, 357 yards, three touchdowns, zero sacks. And they're just, and now they have Zay Flowers caught his balls, Mark Andrews caught the balls on national tight end day, which is a great day, national tight end day. I know Beckham Jr. got involved in the offense, but right, if you're looking at the AFC right now and you're saying, oh, Miami's there and Kansas City's there and Buffalo's there, you've got to put Baltimore, and you can make the case that Baltimore is the better of the team because their defense is so good, and now Lamar Jackson's playing. As long as they catch the balls, but what a win. I mean, they're one of the best wins. I mean, people come in this game and wow, Detroit's going to win this game, and uh, Baltimore 5-2, 38-6 victory. Probably the second most anticipated uh, game of the day was Kansas City taking on the Chargers. Mahomes, great day for him. Justin Herbert, now the, the narrative building that Justin Herbert is not an A-plus quarterback seems to be kind of picking up steam here. I'm kind of unimpressed. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said about May in terms of North Carolina. It's like has all the skills, 6'4", 6'5", 2'4". I mean, when you look at him throw the ball, but, you know, I, I have to say it's Brandon Staley, the coach. There's This is with all the talent they have. They're 2-4 and four now. I still think they're going to make the playoffs. This is crazy. But Mahomes finally, now their offense. See, this is what it's – Kansas City's offense has been doing nothing all year. Not nothing, but some things. But now they're looking like 424 yards, four touchdowns, interceptions. This is Patrick Mahomes. Kelsey, 180 yards, one touchdown. 
touchdowns. You know, they're showing uh, 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 his girlfriend that all the whole Taylor Swift the entire time with with Brittany Mahomes, the the, 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 the handshake they have and all the other stuff they do. But the fact is they bring Nicole Hardman from the Jets. He has a 50-yard punt return. Um, This is – Mahomes now is 29-3 and against the AFC West. And they lead the division by three games. And if they have this great defense and they have the super offense, I mean, this is like a, this is what they're, you know, people should be afraid of. This is what the Dolphins should be afraid of. Because right now, Kansas City's defense looks much better than the Dolphins' defense. And if they can match offense to offense, then Kansas City's going to beat them. Ira on Sports Trulli's channel, only about five minutes, so we have to get to Michael McCambridge. Got to start flying here. Atlanta faced Tampa. And this was a game, Ira, where. Fantasy owners across the country going nuts. What is going on with B. John Robinson? He's there. He's in the formation sometimes. No yards. Yeah, it's a bad loss for Tampa in terms of, but you know, there was not many expectations, but now they've lost three out of four games. Atlanta wins 16-13. This division is going to come down to a 500 record, but it's a weird game for both sides. I mean, the Falcons were fumbling the ball. Ritter had three fumbles in the game, and they won on a field goal at the end, a 51-yard field goal. But I think maybe this is like Tampa reverting to the mean, you know, what people thought they were going to be when the year started. Going back to Thursday night, Jacksonville and uh, New Orleans. This was one, Ira, I got completely wrong. I'm looking at this game like Jacksonville, you know, they've been playing overseas. Trevor Lawrence is hobbled. Saints, this this is their game to win. And, man, Derek Carr just doesn't look good. I don't know if it's coaching or him, but Derek Carr is not looking like a good quarterback right now. No, and a huge win. And this is one other thing about the AFC, and I did mention them just a second ago. Jacksonville, too. Put them in that mix. They're 5-2. and two. Their best start since 2007. Trevor Lawrence goes out. He What a gamer. Comes out. You said he didn't know he was going to play. Plays great. You know, they're up by 24-29. Then to think tie at 24, but then come back and still and still win this game on Christian Kirk. A great pass at the end of the game. But, boy, you really – this is the Jacksonville team we think you talked about. But this is the team that I thought was going to be at the beginning of the year. And now they're playing super well. And Trevor Lawrence is taking that huge step up to, the, uh, to an elite quarterback status. Kind of the same thing that happened last year. Slow start, reeled them off at the end. Vegas taking on Chicago. This was a, kind of a weird matchup. Two backup quarterbacks in here. A friend of mine texted me, do you think Atlanta's the worst run franchise in football? And I said, no, I think it's Vegas. And this game was an example of it, Ira. Brian Hoyer starts this game. Brian Hoyer's been in the league over a decade. He's not good. Why wouldn't you start Aiden O'Connell, guy who just drafted, looked great in the preseason, started one game through two picks, and you bench him. He comes in and actually puts some offense together after Vegas was terrible. But the story of the day is Tyson Badgett. He's the Heisman Trophy winner from Division Two, and looks like he might have something here in the NFL. Well, we talk about Brock Purdy and Mr. Relevant. Nothing can be more irrelevant than Dajan, who is a who's a rookie from this year. This year's rookie. He went to Shepherd College in West Virginia, played in the Pennsylvania College against Kutztown and Shippensburg and Millersville and teams like that. He was the West Virginia Gatorade Player of the Year, but it, he threw for 5,000 yards uh, at 2021. 53 touchdowns and 13 receptions. West Virginia did not really enter transfer portal, but West Virginia could not guarantee that he'd be the quarterback. Clearly, that was a humongous mistake. He has 159 touchdowns as a as a player at, at Shepard, which is an all-time NCAA record in any division. He came in as a third-string quarterback, and now he's starting, and he looks better than Justin Fields, which is absolutely insane. So this sort of takes the pressure off Brock Purdy as like Mr. Irrelevant. This is beyond irrelevant. And another thing, interesting thing, his father is a 17-time arm wrestling champion. And so the fact is that, you know, he comes in from a, from a, from a family that is, that wins. I was talking to a Bears fan friend of mine going into the game. The Bears had the number one and two picks in the draft. Like, you don't even need Caleb Williams at this point. Roll, roll with Badgett. Monday night football's tonight. Nobody's given the Vikings a chance. What do you think? Um, 
I give them a chance, even though that you the question is they would really never play well in the big time at the prime time. But Cousins has been poor his record in Monday Night Football, Sunday Night Football. But I do like the 49ers minus seven to win this game, even they have injuries. Samuel McCaffrey might play. Trent Williams is out. But uh, I think coming back, bouncing back after the loss to Cleveland, I think you're going to see them have a really good game against Minnesota. What's coming up next week? Um, really, I think the big game next week is the Steelers uh, Jacksonville. This is a great rivalry. They played in AC Championship games, and Jacksonville served by a point and a half. Rams at Cowboys and the Patriots Miami game we talked about, and of course the Jets and the Giants. So we glad got you brought that up. <laughs> Tyrod Taylor taking over here in uh, in New York. Danny Dimes is going to be uh, sweeping streets in New York City soon. Going to Major League Baseball, man, we're getting our money's worth out of these uh, division championship series. I, I've been excited to watch every game. Well, let's let's first turn to the American League. I mean, the Rangers go up at, in Astros. Nobody's won on home. They all have what they wrote. They've been road victories. Rangers go up 2-0, beating win two games in Houston. Montgomery beats Berlander the first game. Avaldi beats Fadez in the second. Game three starts, and you go back to Texas. Scherzer gets bombed, and Javier beats them. Altuve, who's had a great series, hits a home run. And Houston was up there. Games four, Houston was up 3-0. The Rangers scored two. And then Abreu for the Astros had a three-run home run, so they win that game. And then they go they go up 3-2 in the series their third game in Texas Verlander versus Montgomery again Verlander gives up four runs the Rangers are up 4-2 in the ninth Altuve has a home run and they they score four runs to take the lead but then last night they come back the Rangers come back and in Houston and destroy the Astros Abave beats Valdez again he's 4-0 in the postseason Valdez is 0-3 and now it brings on tonight's game Scherzer versus Javier Javier, and remember in game three, that's the one the Astros did win, and Scherzer didn't look well. But uh, let's see if big game Max Scherzer, who is pitched. It seems like Max Scherzer is always ending up in these superstar big games. People thought his season was over, and who had thought in the middle of the season with the Mets that he'd be now pitching in a game seven of the ALCS? Yeah, interesting to, uh, to see whether a Mad Max or Bad Max is going to show up tonight because it was definitely Bad Max in the former one. NLCS, I'm loving this, Ira. I am I was a huge Arizona Diamondbacks fan all season. Love what this team's building towards. But the Phillies are a tough out, and, and we're going to see game six tonight with the Phillies up 3-2. to two. You, you wonder, you, no one's giving the Phillies, this, I mean, the, the Diamondbacks a shot at all. I mean, the fact is the Phillies go and they win the first game 5-3, Schwarber, Castellano, Harper home runs. They win 10-0 the second game. You're like, it's over. But then they go to game three in Arizona, and Arizona wins 2-1. You know, they win that game. And then game four, the Phillies are cruising. They're ready to go up 3-1, you know, with, you know, looking really great. And they're up 5-2. And then Zona, Arizona scores one in the seventh, and they three in the eighth. And uh, two on a run, and suddenly they win that game. But then the Phillies come back. And, uh, and again, Wheeler beats Gallen, uh, who's for the second time, Harper, Real Meto, Schwarber, more home runs. And so it really, you know, Nola versus Kelly tonight, I don't think anyone's really giving it back in Philly. You know, if the Philly, Philly's felt, if the Philly fans were excited saying, look, we could go down 3-2 and go back to Philly and we're still going to win this series. But I think the fact that they're, that they're up, you know, going back to Philly for tonight, it's, it's hard to think that they're going to lose tonight. But you don't know. It's baseball, and, and uh, they have the best home field advantage, but I don't know if it's good enough. Yeah, and I, I was going to say that, that. This is really tough now because when you watch them play in Arizona, it's a cavernous ballpark. It's holding Philly in, and all they want to do is hit long balls. You go to the little band box that they have in, in, in Citizens Bank Park, and they can just smack them out of there. I think it's going to be tough. The real story for me here, though, is Zach Wheeler. No team wants to face him right now. This is the the ace of aces right now here in the playoffs. And I think going into the World Series, if they do win tonight, he's going to be able to shut down one of these teams twice. It, 
I, I, if Philly comes back after going to the World Series last year when nobody thought they would to going and winning this year, I'm not going to be shocked at all. I'm going to say one thing about Arizona, though. When they, I remember they beat when they won against the the Yankees. I don't think anyone gave them a chance. And when you have Mariano Marrera on the mound with the win in his hand to win a World Championship, and they lose that. It, that, I think, is harder than coming back from 3-2 in this series because there's nothing like that. So I think as someone who has you know, watched every single of those games in one of those amazing World Series of all time, uh, just think about that series in terms of how they won that. I, I'm never going to take it out of the chance that they would blow that. That series. bloop right. single off Mariano Rivera is the second worst memory of Yankee fan history for me. <laughs> First being losing you know, a three-run lead to a three-game lead to Boston in 3 Let's go to UFC. What happened? Um, Islam Makarov, who is now, who was the question whether he or Alexander Volkanovsky, uh, Islam is the lightweight champion and Alexander is the featherweight champion. They fought a few months ago. Islam won. And people said, because they, they're both champions, so they went up and, and Alexander went up. They fought again because Oliveri, who was supposed to play uh, fight, backed out the last minute. Well, Islam now won again in like a first round knockout, which now he should clearly be the best USC fighter to be ranked uh, pound for pound. He's 25 and one, but huge win for him. This was at two o'clock in the afternoon. I could not watch the watch it, but I did watch the replay, but I didn't watch it live. But Islam is now like he's the new Khabib. I mean, he's the champion. Like no one's gonna. He is the number one player. And I, I think they put John Jones, who is on November 11th, is gonna fight against Music. But I think that Islam is the number one UFC fighter right now. What about boxing? Well, coming up on Saturday, it'll be real interesting. Tyson Fury, who's the boxing champion of the world. Francis Nagano, who was the UFC heavyweight champion, who resigned, who is undefeated, quit the UFC, is now in a boxing match. So this is crazy. One of these like uh, Mayweather versus McGregor. But the fact that these are two in their prime athletes, Fury and Nagano. But Fury is this huge favorite, minus 1,200 to Nagano. And it'll be just interesting to see if Nagano, as the current UFC champion, not a has, but not whatever, but someone who who wasn't beaten in the ring, who just was, you know gave up the retired uh, would it would be able to go against fury so i'm excited about that what about uh, formula one well, Verstappen won in Austin. He's now won 15 out of 18 races. which was huge because of America. Then you find out like Rory McIlroy and all these other people are investing in, in Formula One, but uh, they only have three maps. Verstappen's won the title. They play Mexico, Brazil, Vegas, and Abu Dhabi are the, are the races left. But uh, it was, again, I wish they would do this more in the summer to have it right during football season when the games are on. It's hard to focus on all the football games and watch Formula One at the same time. Yeah, and what about NASCAR? They were a little south of us in Homestead. Yeah, Chris Bell had a big win, and now there's only Marksville and Phoenix left. They do a final four. Bell and Kyle Larson are in that final four, so that actually got him into the final four for to say that, okay, the champions who get down to the final race will be four racers for Phoenix. But there's only two races left for NASCAR, and Larson, who won it two years ago, and Chris Bell, who won in Homestead. So I was at Homestead. I went to that during the COVID pandemic. It was one of the things you could go to, and I love going to Homestead for the race. It was a lot of fun. Let's talk a little tennis before we get to Michael McCambridge. I just want to make this prediction. I said this, and everyone laughed at me. I got a lot of comments about this. I said that Ben Shelton is going to be number one by the end of the year. I, it, it, I think he is, and I, unless Djokovic can hold him off, I think he's better than Carlos Alcaraz, and he's now won, since I said that, he's won 14 to 16 matches. He just won his first tournament. He's playing great, so I'm telling you, Ben Shelton, who I saw, or I saw him at the US Open, I said he's never seen anything like it. Everyone laughed at me for this prediction, but I'm telling you, he is winning since I saw him. He's the only player he's lost with Djokovic and Corden. He's won 14 of the 16 matches. Let's go to Michael McCambridge. It's Iron Sports. 
This is Iron Sports. We're so fortunate to have Michael McCambridge, a phenomenal author. You can read him in all these magazines and newspapers and have an amazing book on Chuck Knoll and on the NFL. Uh, he has a new book out called The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on Iron Sports. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, your book brings back now. I I'm sort of re- don't remember the early '70s. I remember the last five years more than I do the first five. But you talk about how the '70s just transformed what sports we see today is, and nothing could be more important than you talk about the, the use of television and and how that has changed it. The fact that between Monday through Friday. But, you know, you would never have any sports. It would end on Sunday. So we would not be like watching sports all this week. I'd have to wait till the following week to watch sports. Exactly. I think that that was one of the, the most obvious changes when I looked at, at the differences between. I do remember the first half of the 70s and the first half of the 70s at the beginning of that decade. Sports was just so much on the margins. You know, it it only came out at certain times and. You could walk down a, a street in a city in America and not have any evidence, not have any sense of it being in the air. And to your point, yes, I think Monday Night Football was hugely influential because even as successful as the NFL had been throughout the 60s, when the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, pitched the networks on this Monday night package of games in prime time, CBS turned him down, NBC turned him down. And it was the number three network, ABC, that finally, almost reluctantly, um, took that chance. And it worked out for the best because, of course, ABC had the the soon-to-be legendary producer, Rune Arledge, who was convinced that he could revolutionize the way sports were shown on TV and then went about to do it. I mean, it's it's striking if you if you go on YouTube and watch telecasts of sports events from the late 60s, just how static it is, just how, you know, you're pointing a camera at a field and then saying, Leroy Kelly off tackle for three yards. And <laughs> what, what Arledge did with Monday Night Football so supremely well was he focused on the conflict, the drama, the personalities, the narrative arc of a game, the significance and context, contextualization of that game within the serial drama of a season. And then you've got the personalities in the booth, Howard Cosell, Dandy Don, a year later, Frank Gifford. And all of that made sports more compelling, more interesting to the casual viewer, which you had to do because going to prime time, you were facing the broadest audience in American culture, and it was majority female. And so if you had gotten the same ratings that you got on Sunday afternoon, on Monday night, the program would have been canceled after a year. But um, I think the genius of Arledge and Monday Night Football was it underscored the dramatic aspects of sports and made it a bigger tent that more people could could come into and appreciate. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, uh, even I had Larry Zonka on the show a few weeks ago, and he mentioned in his book about how when they first played, they played one of the first Monday Night Football games and how big that was and that was because the games were in color and all these other things yeah. about that. Just it, and, then, and you write in your book how all the NFL players would sit and watch the game. It's the one game yeah. they could watch because there was, no, there was no Sunday Night Football. There was no Thursday. There was no, that was it. Right. It was the only game that they was could it. all watch. Exactly. Joe Green said he, he never missed a Monday Night game. Wherever he was, off day, he was, he was going to make sure he saw the game. 
And one of the other big changes from this in the 70s is you talk about how athletes, and we look at this now as insane when we think about the money in sports and what these athletes are making, but the fact that there was Chiefs that worked on the uh, Kansas City Chiefs that worked on you know the assembly line. It's like Travis Kelsey would go from playing football <laughs> on Sunday to go work on the assembly line Monday through Friday. The NBA players, star players that were in the Hall of Fame, were bank tellers in off seasons. People were selling things in at stores and salesmen. They this you it, the seventies made sports, especially the big team sports, a full time job and also something where people your athletes can make millions and millions of dollars from. Yeah, and I you know I was struck by. Um, there's a quote in there from Gordie Howe um, after he'd signed a big contract with the World Hockey Association, which was the rival league that challenged the NHL for a few years. And Howe was in his 40s by the time he signed the deal. But, but he made the point that when he was the star player on the Red Wings and he was winning MVPs and they were winning Stanley Cups in the 60s, he still had to work an off-season job. And his next-door neighbor who worked in business had a boat and they had a you know lake house on the weekends and Gordy's watching him drive off. Meanwhile, he can't buy a drink in town because he's the superstar, but he's still making these you know relatively piddling wages. And so the the, the notion that the seventies was also the dawn of the emancipation of the athlete and athletes getting paid like entertainers, which is in a real sense what they are. Um, that that was also an important piece. Right, and you you go through the fact that the reserve clause, it used to be that you signed with the team and that's you're going to be playing for the team the rest of your life and Kurt Flood and, and some of these players that, that pushed that and were able to make court challenges with it and also the fact there were rival leagues that were able, like the ABA, threw money out of players like so Kareem got the $1.4 million contract and all those things uh, pushed the sports in terms of the athletes making more money. Yes, and then, but you still had to have the, the decision by the Major League Baseball arbiter Peter Seitz, um, that freed Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally um, late in 1975 and ushered in the era of free agency. You know, it was it was years before there was free agency in the NBA, and it was more than a decade before there was free agency in the NFL. But that decision was was seismic, and I think that you can make a case that after that decision free agency was inevitable. It was going to come sooner or later, one way or the other. And, and we've seen that today. And, you know, people, uh, of course, complain today. Is this person worth 40 million? Is that person worth 30 million? And the answer is the same as it's always been, which is, you know, should the athlete with, with his or her short career get that money? Or do you want it to go to the owner? Well, I think most people want it to go to the athletes. <laughs> And then you talked about athletes being entertainers, and that's the one thing you focus in the book a lot too, is the fact that that some of the, that suddenly O.J. Simpson and and even when I we talked about Zonka and Kick, who after they won, you know, they brought every commercial we said imaginable, and Jack Nicklaus yeah. started doing commercials, and the fact that these athletes are more than just the players. And athletes had been in endorsers before in the fifties and sixties, but then in the seventies, especially with the African American athlete, with uh, including O.J. Simpson, was able then to take huge advantage because they became super popular all across America. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously O.J. Simpson is a complicated case um, for for the obvious reasons of um, it seems that he's a murderer. Um, and so you, you have to look back on that, um, I think, in a little bit different light. At the same time, O.J. and Jack Nicholas and Joe Green with the Coke commercial later in the decade, um, those were signs of 
the changing profile of the American athlete. Uh, because as you say, there, there were athletes doing ads in the 50s and 60s, but mostly it was for niche, you know, Vitalis hair care products or Janssen shirts or something like this. Now suddenly you have an athlete, an African-American athlete, as the sort of star of this major nationwide television campaign um, for a rental car company. And you have Jack Nicholas all over Sports Illustrated doing ads for everything from cars to golf clubs to sport clothes. Um, and, and that was a sign. Uh, and, and this is certainly Monday Night Football was part of this, of moving sports into a more central role in American culture. And you mentioned, I mean, there's so many side things. This book is great. It's called The Big Time. And you know, small little points in the book about Nicholas, I know we're down here in Florida where golf is huge, is that when he was heavy, if you looked at the younger Jack Nicholas, was very, very heavy. But when he, after the concession, the, the famous thing with the concession at the Ryder Cup, which we just talked, you know, you heard about the concession and those things with Tony right. Jacklin, that he decided he was, not just saying he could say, he conceded because he, didn't want to, he was tired and he just, he needed to lose weight. And when he lost weight, then he realized it became more marketable. And that's a nice little side story that you brought up in the book. And it speaks to the importance of image in our culture because uh, obviously Nicholas had struggled with being the antagonist of Arnold Palmer and resented and sometimes booed by the, by the galleries in the 60s. He's the same person, same excellent golfer, but suddenly he emerges newly svelte and with longer hair and he gets rid of the, you know, the awful bucket hats that he was wearing at times in the 60s. And suddenly he's the golden bear and the galleries get bigger and he becomes a crowd favorite. Same person. Um, so, yeah, that was that was uh, that was a dramatic change. And um, and it was I thought Nicholas is the perfect example to show it. And just the sports, we talked about sports and entertainment. It was the mix of sports being these events. And the fact that you highlighted a, a bunch of them in the book, but, you know, the 70 and 71, the fight of the century, Ollie Frazier, Madison Square Garden, with all the celebrities and everybody who was anybody there. And then the King, Bob, the uh, uh, Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs tennis match. A tennis match, can you imagine? Had all the celebrities. So we're focused now on the Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift and how that, isn't it great? But, but again, those, that, that idea of entertainment and the mix between entertainment and sports started in, that, in the 70s. And I think, I think it's important to emphasize that those things weren't just about entertainment either. Um, both of the examples you mentioned, the first Ali Frazier fight and the battle of the sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, who you were rooting for in those matches said something about the way you saw the world, what you thought about equality of the sexes, what you thought about the war in Vietnam, those were instances where these sports events were sort of the, you know, kind of a Spanish civil war for the larger struggle going on in the society as a whole. And um, I think they're more fascinating because of that. Yeah, you mentioned in the book how Ollie came into the fight as someone who was not liked at all. Frazier was the more popular fighter. And even though Frazier won the fight in, in one of the greatest events, sports events in the history of all time, but after it, how Ollie was able to be humble enough to say I lost, but also how he handled it, he became more popular in a loss. And, and certainly how Billie Jean King handled that whole match against Bobby Riggs, had, you know, her popularity skyrocketed after that match. Yeah, and I think the other thing with Ali was obviously then we are however many years into the folly of Vietnam, and it turns out that this, you know, loudmouth African-American boxer that a lot of middle-class whites resented 
And it turns out he was right. And, um, and then you started, I can remember talking to the, the broadcaster, Bob Costas, who said that even as Ali was a controversial figure, he was very popular on college campuses. And Costas remembered going to a uh, closed circuit broadcast when he was a student at Syracuse to watch the fight and just how wildly popular Ali was in that arena, because by then the tide was even then starting to turn. And then you mentioned about, you just mentioned about colleges and in your section of the book about the, in terms of the seventies, the African-American emergence in terms of, and in, 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 they've already, they, the pro sports were integrated, uh, but colleges were not. And you mentioned, you gave this whole story about the 70 national championship game between Texas and Notre Dame and how they played and what a great game it was and everything. At the end, you said, no, there was not one African-American player on either team. And the fact that Grambling would send more players to the NFL than any of these top teams. And it's just the integration in the 70s. And also I learned about Nebraska and Oklahoma won those titles because they integrated quicker, and that's why they became so dominant in terms of it. Uh, but just that whole idea about how college football, and especially college football, which is one of the dominant sports, changed in the 70s. Yeah, now just to clarify one point, the Texas team that won that national title on New Year's Day 1970, they were all white. There were some African-American players on the Notre Dame team they played. But indeed... Grambling had more players taken in the draft than than Texas and Notre Dame combined. And, you know, you also get this was the stark thing when I go back and and started researching the decade. You get the stark juxtaposition of New Year's Day 1970, the last all-white national champions in college football. Ten days later, Super Bowl IV, the Chiefs, the first team in the history of pro football with a majority of starters who were African-American, beat the Vikings in the Super Bowl, and we go from seeing, you know, the past, the last gasp of the segregated past, to 10 days later getting this glimpse of, of the integrated future. And that was a story that played out throughout the, the course of the decade as well. And I'm a Pirates fan, and I noticed in your book that it's like when the Pirates had an all-African-American lineup, it was almost by accident when one player went out yeah. and one of the players looked at the other and said, this is the first time that it's happened. They didn't know at the time that was the first, but, but that was actually the Pirates were the first one to have an all-African-American lineup on the field at one time. And certainly, I, I write about at the end of the book, the, the 79 Pirates team, the We Are Family Pirates, was just this wonderful cultural stew of black and white and Hispanic and, and so open and freewheeling and, and Willie Stargell, the pops as sort of the, the spiritual leader of the team. And that was an example of what integration could accomplish people from different backgrounds, different races, different nationalities, finding common ground and common cause. And that was, you know, an example of sports at its best. And in that way, I think you could make a case that um, sports was a leader for the society because a lot of, you know, sports integrated before a lot of business, a lot of businesses, a lot of faculties, a lot of different walks of life um, integrated much later than sports did. Yeah, I had Dave Parker on my show, and he talked about the 79 team, and that was uh, what a tremendous uh, <laughs> uh, collection of talent and personalities on that team. And then the other major change, there's so many, this book is so it's phenomenal, but the major change was it clearly in women's sports. And you mentioned the Billie Jean King match, which was one thing, but also Title IX and the fact that you gave up statistics like in the 60s, there was no women's basketball. There was six-on-six six basketball. At the Olympics, the longest race that a woman ran was 800 meters. And now what we look to see have now. So, Yeah, it, it's 
I think of all the changes in the 70s, the one that has largely resonated for the for the longest period of time, the one that feels, I think, the most important today is the unprecedented, unimagined number of women who got involved with sports, not just as athletes, but as coaches, administrators, spectators, writers. Um, the statistic I cite in my book that still is, is remarkable when I think about it, at the beginning of the 70s, in American high schools, only one out of every 27 girls were involved in an organized sports team or athletics. Within a generation of Title IX, which passed in 72, the number had grown to one in three. Today, today it is two in five. And we see things like, you know, that, that Women's World Cup this summer, which had such incredible interest, even as the matches were starting at ridiculous o'clock, you know, the middle of the night, um, how many thousands of people show up at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln to watch a Nebraska volleyball game, then Coco Goff winning the U.S. Open and, um, and getting a higher rating for the women's singles final than the men's singles final got. Caitlin Clark obviously becoming the sensation of March Madness. And we are, we are in this maturation point for women's sports. And the case I make is that what happened in the 70s, not just Billie Jean, not just Title IX, but also the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the governance organization that handled women's sports in college when the NCAA wouldn't bother with it, and in fact was fighting Title IX, those factors created the infrastructure that we see growing today in women's sports and hugely important in um, changing not just sports, but society as a whole. Yeah, I mean, when you look at those pictures at Nebraska, if anyone has not seen that, the volleyball match in the middle of a Husker Stadium, drawing, yeah. was it 100,000 people? Not, yeah. I don't, it was 80,000 people, I think. And then Caitlin Clark, <laughs> and yeah. Caitlin Clark playing in, in front of tens of thousands of people at, outside at Hawkeye Stadium in Iowa. Uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing to think that that happened. But, uh, and it just happened this past year. So pretty tremendous. Yeah. So, but anyway, your book, this is, we've been talking to Michael McCambridge, author of the big time uh, discussion about the seventies. So even if you're, we're, uh, if you live through the seventies, it's great to bring uh, memories. And if you're trying, if you're someone who's just interested in sports and interested about hearing about these athletes that formed and you, and we didn't even discuss about some of these great basketball players. You talked about Kareem and Dr. I should actually mention about Kareem and Dr. J in terms of what their impact was on sports. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a case to be made that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the most misunderstood superstar athlete in the 70s. And he was was somebody whose talent spanned the decade. Um, and he was crucially important. And yet, Dr. J stands out to me as the last truly mythic figure in American sports. I grew up in Kansas City. And in like 1975 or 76, on the playground in Kansas City, if you asked 10 kids who their favorite basketball player was, probably seven or eight of them would have said Julius Irving, Dr. J. And what was so amazing about that was none of us had seen him play because he was in the ABA still. They didn't have a national TV contract. You'd just hear stories and you'd see these pictures and you'd hear these urban myths of he dunked from the free throw line and he dunked over artist Gilmore and he can do anything and jump and touch the top of the backboard. He was this terrific 
idealized figure, but that we just never saw him play because television was was the avenue and the ABA, um, to its detriment, never got that national TV contract. And I can't tell you the number of people I spoke to who had seen him in the ABA who said as great as Dr. J was when he got to the 76ers, he was never as good as he was when he was playing with the Nets in the ABA. Well, Michael, thank you so much for talking, uh, coming on. I urge everyone to, you know, people be traveling this time for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, you're stuck in airports. This is a great book to read, The Big Time by Michael McCambridge. Thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Awesome stuff there. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Ira, besides a half a dozen fantasy basketball drafts, what are you up to this week? <laughs> well, it looks like I'm going to go to Penn State, Indiana on Saturday. My first game at Penn State all this year. And then I'm going to see the best football game next week is going to be Jacksonville at the Steelers. Cannot wait for that game on Sunday. So two two games next weekend. Thanks so much to Michael McCambridge for stopping by. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports. All right, cool. We're about uh, seven minutes over, but I'll, I'll make it oh, work. Oh, my God. <laughs>